0: Morning, everyone. Yes, now I've got to talk very close to the microphone. Thank you, Neil, for your leadership this morning. What you said is uh, is what I'm going to say too. You know, Neil and I go back many, many years. <laughs> we we uh, we play cricket together, and I was there on the day playing in the team with Neil when he uh, on ninety nine hit. A ball towards the boundary and was caught on the boundary so uh, one short of the the century um we attended Lynn and I had just started going together when we attended Neil and Lynn's wedding in 1973 and they came to our wedding uh later in that same year and uh for much of Neil's 25 years as pastor of Unley Park Baptist Church we were in his congregation okay. and uh it, they, they were superb times. You know, they were great times. Mm. Okay, the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, I believe, is the narrator or narrators actually saying um, uh, or, or seeking to answer the question, who are we? Who are we? So uh, in the first week I was here, we, uh, we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and we saw that we were creatures uh, dependent on the Creator. Uh, more so than that, we are like the Creator in that we too are charged with bringing order out of chaos into our world. We are like God. We're in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 2, we, we see... Um, uh, uh, that uh, the Creator had certain intentions for us. He intended for us to relate to others, especially in the male-female relationship. He intended us to work and care for his creation, bringing order out of chaos into his environment or into the environment we find ourselves And he created us with a yearning to freely choose to obey him. So that's where we've got to so far. I want to tell you about uh, an article in the Advertiser uh, about a month ago now about a young man, a 27-year-old man called Joshua Winslet. Now this guy, this young guy won $22 million in a lottery. Now that... That has to be good, doesn't it? But then we find out that he's involved in a court case. He's up before the judge. We find out that he became hopelessly addicted to illicit drugs like cocaine and MDMA, which is an amphetamine-like drug. I was a pharmacist for a few years. (laughs) These, These drugs are not really very nice, and I had to deal with some people... Uh, who were addicted to these sort of drugs, and they become not very nice people uh, anyway he was uh, with his twenty two million was dishing out these drugs uh, not only for himself or, or his uh, um, he, he was dishing them out to his mates as well. The police received a tip off that Joshua was manufacturing drugs on his premises. So they investigated, they found a whole lot of uh, illicit drugs there and a gun. So they booked him. The judge said uh, in the court case that because of the lottery win, he lapsed into a lazy, uh, pleasure-seeking, self-seeking lifestyle. And he received a suspended three-year jail sentence. We've got to ask, why is this so? Why is this so? Wouldn't this guy's windfall give him the opportunity to do so much good? Wouldn't it? you would think that he'd want to invest his winnings and receive advice and training to make a positive impact in the world for the rest of his life, to be generous to people in need. But oh no, he got into illicit drugs. You know, we're all capable of doing so much good, yet it's so easy to lapse into evil. Are we who follow Jesus exempt from this tendency to do or say or think wrongly? No. We might be better at hiding than a lot of people. Sin is a reality. And that's what I want to say this morning, and what's been said so well by Neil already, that we've become sinners Fallen from the creator's intention, now with a broken relationship with our creator. Why do people made in the image of God have an inclination towards evil actions and bad words and wrong thoughts? Of course, I need to clarify that. Not that we only do say and think evil all of the time. That's not true either. There's much good that we are able to do, but the evil that is everywhere has spread to every facet of our lives. So what we read in Genesis chapter 3 fills out the picture that we get from the first two chapters. And we need to take this uh, as an understanding in our lives the first thing i want to say is that sin is rebellion against god that's the first thing that we notice in genesis chapter 3 the story of sin really commences with god's command in the garden where he says in chapter 2 you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Hebrew actually says, in dying, you will die. So the first couple start off in submission to God. They preserve the order of creation, where the creature is related to the creator through voluntary obedience. But then along comes this crafty serpent. The serpent uh, appears here as an embodiment of evil. And he is able to seduce this first couple to rebel. The serpent uh, firstly distorts God's command. He said to them, did God command, uh, really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, you see, God didn't say that. He's in effect saying... Um, that uh, obedience to God greatly restricts human freedom. That's a lie. But it uh, contributes to the rebellion of the couple. The woman, well, she she speaks next. The woman is not too sure about uh, the exact details of God's command. She puts rather a, a strict spin on the whole thing. She replies, uh, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, whoa, or you will die. I think that's uh, a call for us to know our Bibles well, and uh, not to misquote it. Um, Then in verse 4, the serpent openly contradicts the command. He says, You will not surely die. And so in verse 6, we read the chilling words. She took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So firstly, sin is an act of deliberate departure from God, a rebellion against his authority. The second thing we learn from this passage is that sin is evident in human pride. You see, sin is removing God from the controlling center of our lives and substituting ourselves. Sin is the rejection of the sovereignty of the Creator and our status as creatures dependent on the Creator. Sin is snatching independence through pride in our ability to go it alone. Now yeah, there's nothing wrong with uh, having pride in our appearance, of course, uh, or taking pride in the standard of our work, for two, e- two examples. I'm not talking about that kind of pride at all. I'm talking about pride which comes out of our inclination to be independent from God in the decisions and life choices that we make. In verse uh, 5, after denying God's word the serpent puts a tantalizing offer appealing directly to human pride. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So in verse 6, we read, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, And ate it. So this appeal to pride was fanned by the practical usefulness of the fruit. It was good for food. Pride is seen in our supposed ability to decide for ourselves what is good for us. The appeal to pride was also fanned by its pleasing appearance. It was pleasing to the eye. Human pride is based on appeal to the senses. And thirdly, the appeal to pride was fanned by the desire for intellectual power, desirable for gaining wisdom. We all need lots of wisdom, but pride and knowledge can be very subtle. For example, science is an important way of viewing our will. It's a a God-given tendency we have to investigate and and categorise. But it can also be easily confused with another religion, which I would call atheistic naturalism. This worldview makes science the only source of truth, leading to extreme scepticism about spiritual values. Yes, we need to beware of pride in all its form. The Bible says that this kind of pride leads to a fall. The third thing that I would get out of this passage is that sin results in a loss of freedom. Now, today, most people define freedom as doing what you want to, when you want to, with the saying, uh, if, it, if it feels good, let's do it. That's what most people understand by freedom. In fact, uh, a great 20th century philosopher by the name of Bertram Russell said, freedom is the absence of, uh, of obstacles to the realization of desire. Hmm. See, God's desire in creating us is that we freely choose to obey his command. Freedom, I believe, is voluntary submission to the will of the creator. The creator's freedom doesn't restrict us. Far from cramping our our style, obedience actually opens up our lives to the fullest, most satisfying human experience available in this age. For the first couple, every tree of the garden could provide fruit for them. There was only one little prohibition, the tree representing the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil. What's knowledge? Uh, in Hebrew, it refers to experience of. It's, it's not just head knowledge, it's experience of. Good refers to what is positive, what is beneficial to humans. Evil refers to all that is negative and detrimental. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents a fuller range of human experience than God intended at creation. So the serpent subtly Introduces temptation. And with great expectation, the couple await their freedom, but it blows up in their faces. They are not free. A new slavery engulfs them. There is a new experience awaiting them, but they've not become godlike. The covering of their nakedness is a sign of the grievous disruption that enters human relationships. When we get down to verses 8 to 13, we notice a disturbance and disorder in humanity's relationship with the Creator. God seeks them out. He still does today, but they want to hide from him. The man refuses to take personal responsibility for his sin. He passes the buck, blaming Eve, his wife. Some of us are still like that, aren't we, Neil, (laughs) at times? She, in turn, uh, also refuses to own up, blaming the snake for deceiving her. Verse 15, which we didn't read, hints at a breakdown in the relationship between humans and nature. So as a result of creation, we are challenged with this question. How can we subdue and rule over creation in a way that honors the creator? How can we subdue and rule over creation in a way that makes it sustainable for all future generations? Uh, And today we have people that worship creation as an idol. We can't do that. We have other people that want to exploit it uh, out of a sense of human greed. And look where that's got us. Uh, This human sin has led to the ecological crisis that we have today. Loss of freedom is the inevitable result of sin. Now, I just want to Wind up what I've been saying over the last three weeks. More than 500 years ago, the great artist Michelangelo created an exquisite marble sculpture called the Pieta. It depicts Mary holding a dead Christ in her arms after he was taken down from the cross. There it is up there. That's how it was. It was openly displayed in the Vatican. But in 1972, a madman attacked it with a hammer. Can you imagine anything so vile as, as destroying a, a beautiful sculpture like that? Anyway, it, it, uh, he severely damaged the, this work of art. He broke the virgin's arm at the elder, elbow and knocked a chunk out of her nose before being stopped and arrested. Was it damaged beyond saving? How could it be restored to its original glory? Well, they did kind of restore it. I think that humans are a bit like that prize sculpture. We are marred by sin, created in God's likeness, like God in bringing order out of creation. We have ended up with a blessing that is that is complicated and diminished. Our choices have resulted in rebellion against God. Our choices have resulted in pride, promoting ourselves to the controlling center of our lives. Our choices have resulted in a loss of freedom. Thankfully, there is a sequel to this sad story. Only the Creator can fix this relationship. We can't do it ourselves. The Creator does not abandon us to the consequences of our sin, but seeks to restore and renew us to give us new life. He graciously proceeds to act a plan of salvation, which we read about in the totality of our Bibles. So Genesis 1 to 3 is the start. All sorts of wonderful things happen after that. The creator became human in Jesus, the greatest miracle of all. And he died on the cross to free us from our sin and our brokenness. The cross is not the end of the story. If so, human sin would have triumphed. The image-bearing creature would have remained forever lost in rebellion and pride and in hopeless bondage to all that's wrong. But God raised this Jesus from death, so bringing victory over human sin and death and making possible a new creation. So in this era, believers are in the process of receiving this new creation through the Holy Spirit active in his church. And one day Jesus will return. The creator will bring a new heaven, a new earth. Ending sin's presence forever for those who believe. There's a wonderful verse in the book of Revelation that says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life. The tree of life from which the first couple were expelled. Now, we have the possibility and the future and the hope of being in something far greater than the original creation, a new creation, an eternal life. That's the story of God. That's the complete story of God. We no longer need to be destroyed and doomed by our sin. By faith, we can claim Jesus' destiny as our own and be saved. Through God's undeserved favour, we can start to experience cleansing and renewal from sin, a new creation. And that's about all I have to say. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Laurie. You're dismissed. A wonderful lead-in to...